Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. Today's episode is a lecture by Simon Critchley called Infinitely Demanding, Politics of Resistance, Ethics of Commitment, presented on April 18, 2013, at the New School for Social Research Philosophy Department via Das Unbehagen a free association for psychoanalysis. There is also a video of this lecture that I will link to in the text accompanying this episode. It's available through the Das Umbehagen website, dasumbehagen.org. That's D-A-S-U-N-B-E-H-A-G-E-N.org. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. From Chapart Books, 2019. For more, please visit our publisher's website, chapart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash v-a-n-e-s-s-a two three c-a-r-l your support is greatly appreciated for more information you can also visit my website drvanessasinclair.net or the podcast main website rendering unconscious Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. before the end of the academic year, April 26th to 28th at Gordon University. We have laughter and psychoanalysis conference. Um, the morning of April 28th, we have a free event that uh, Hugh Lipsofe is going to be presenting um, at 10 a.m. And then after that, we've got our Umbapagan general meeting, which is on May 9th at the Ear Inn. You don't have to remember all of this. If you're interested, just let me know, and I can send you a list of the announcements. Um, then Lou Aaron, you have presenting the other Psychoanalytic Institute on May 23rd. And then finally, we have Leon Baltimore screening The Night of the Hunter on May 31st. Um, so if you're interested and you already are not on the Imbahagin listserv, just find me afterwards and I'll put you on the listserv before you can announce it. Good evening, I'm Evan Malinter on behalf of Das Unbehagen. I want to welcome you to our special and long-anticipated event with Simon Critchley, Infinitely Demanding Politics of Resistance, Ethics of Commitment. Simon Critchley is the Hans Jonas Professor of Philosophy at the New School. He's on the faculty of the European Graduate School and is a world-renowned scholar of continental philosophy. Much of his work examines the relationship between the ethical and political 
within philosophy. He's the author of over 20 books. His most yeah. recent, no? His most recent books are Faith, Faith of the Faithless, and forthcoming in June is Stay Illusion, co-written with Jameson Webster, who's right here. Um, Simon Critchley's published work deals largely with disappointment and its relationship to philosophy. Chiefly <laughs> <laughs> religious or political disappointment. Critchley released Infinitely Demanding in 2007, a book which discusses the contemporary state of disappointment in liberal politics. Infinitely Demanding culminates in an argument for anarchism as an ethical practice. What does it mean for Das Unbehagen, a somewhat anarchist collective that begins from a sense of disappointment in the current state of psychoanalysis and its institutional formations to engage with the thinking of Simon Critchley? Specifically, what does it mean to take up Critchley's notion of an ethical responsibility and fidelity to an infinite demand in the name of psychoanalysis? Importantly for Critchley, we are called by a demand that is more than we as split, conflicted subjects can possibly meet. A fact that can generate a sense of the tragic, but which he argues can perhaps also call on a sense of humor. A happy thought for me and Unbehagen, a group that has taken as our unofficial motto, Unbehagen, we like to say fuck. <laughs> more seriously, we come tonight to consider with Simon Critchley what it can mean to organize in ways that bypass typical hierarchies and bureaucratic structures in order to create a new sense of commitment, motivation, and vitality. Um, we will take questions after the talk, so having said that, please join me in welcoming Simon Critchley. Thank you. largely from my uh, bedroom um, in conversations with my wife, Jameson Webster. And um, it does come out of a very palpable sense of disappointment with psychoanalytic institutions. And uh, we can talk about that. I have a, a passionate curiosity about psychoanalysis, but no particular competence. But it seems to me that there is something institutionally fucked up about psychoanalysis and the relationship between of psychoanalysis to the institution has been one that has been fraught throughout its history. It is an open question whether that could ever be rectified but let's keep that in mind. So I, I hope that some of the concepts I'm going to talk about tonight will be of some use. There's a lovely quote by um, Foucault you know, les gens que j'aime, je les utilise, the people I like, I use. So I hope you can use some of this stuff, although it's written with a different audience in mind. Um, what I'm going to do is, uh, is present the argument of this book, Infinitely Demanding. And I'm going to work from um, the, the sort of fortuitous circumstance that the the books come out in different languages, but of course, the language that's most difficult to get translated into is French, because the French are French. That's why we love them, or we don't. And uh, but it finally appears in French tomorrow, at 
thanks to Julien Chardin, who is at the back of the room. So I'm very grateful to Julien, he's been a great help over the years. And uh, Julien asked me to write a preface to the French editions. This is what I'm going to use. It's a kind of attempt to talk about the argument and then to update it a little bit. Um, so let's just, uh, oh yeah, there's something else here. Oh, oh, yeah. Well, the thing is that infinitely demanding was, you know, as Jameson pointed out, dedicated to my mother. <laughs> I wrote a book called Very Little Almost Nothing. It was dedicated to my father. <laughs> Such is the, the work of the symptom. I didn't, it didn't cross my mind. You know. <laughs> so, this is for my mother. It's an attempt to pull into one argument a number of things I've been thinking about, at least since my time as a student in France in the late 1980s. And the aim of the book is very simple. It's to lay out uh, my position with regard to ethics as clearly as possible around the theme of commitment. That's the sort of where the thing began, was around a, an attempt to breathe some life back into that seemingly passé uh, Sartrean concept of commitment of engagement to begin an ethics from idea of commitment and to show how such an ethics might have political consequences and might constitute a vision of political resistance. So that's basically the ambition of the book. The book begins with what our German chums call uh, a Zeitdiagnose, a diagnosis of the times. Um, and although the writing of this book was finished in August 2006, I still think it has some explanatory power. It's the picture of a world framed by war, where purportedly democratic regimes, like the USA, deploy terror in their attempts to confront it. Terror. And it's still um, very much with us, even if full-scale classical military invasions have given way to the cowardice of drone strikes and the cynicism of assassination. And this is what I call, in the book, uh, military neoliberalism. So this is with the, the name of the, as with the governing regime of the present is what I want to call the military neoliberalism, where economic policies intended to further the interests of Western powers are backed up with the threat of military intervention. This is the moment, the Leslie Nielsen moment, right? We'll be worried in police squad where it says, I'm interested in justice, and that means bullets. Right? So justice comes with bullets. I begin from the claim that there is a massive motivational deficit at the heart of Western democracy. Whatever alleged consensus, states like France, I'm writing this with you know, France in mind, as I said, whatever census consensus governed states like France has long since broken down. Political parties have shifted from being the extensions and expressions of genuine social movements, which they were in the history of, say, the Labour Party, but equally the Conservative Party in the country I'm from. They've gone from that into being the compromised elements in a corrupt technocratic game that leaves citizens more and more disillusioned and therefore open to the seductions of populism atavistic nationalism and racism. So, in the French context, at the moment, this is the 
what's been called the Kozak Affair, Jérôme Kozak, who um, has a lot of money tucked away in Swiss bank accounts and lied in the Assemblée Nationale. And um, this has started a debate about the political system. But the wider issue here is that the political parties, you can see this in particular in something like Britain, uh, membership of political parties has steadily diminished over the years. Political parties have become kind of technocratic elites in uh, a relationship to different agencies, different sets of interests. And the idea of these parties being those mechanisms that would uh, allow for something like popular sovereignty in accordance with the usual story about democracy seems to be rather <coughs> far-fetched. And you can then extrapolate that to another level when you think about the European context in particular. I'll maybe say a few words about the crisis of sovereignty in the EU at a certain point. The experience, to exp so I begin from an idea of motivational deficit. Right? Motivational deficit. And political disappointment. And this political disappointment, that we live in a world that is unjust, can have two reactions, I say early in the book. Those two reactions are passive nihilism and active nihilism. Now, passive nihilism is basically the idea that the world is a chaotic, disorderly place that's blowing itself to pieces, and in relationship to that, one should make oneself into a kind of island and withdraw from it. And one can do that through personal practices of yoga or meditation, or indeed you could link that to a certain, as it were, triumph of the therapeutic, as Philip Reef would say. Right? I, I work on me. The world is fucked. I work on me. I learn to love myself. Passive nihilism has got a lot going for it. Let me just say that. I think in many ways it's a completely coherent response to a world that seems to be out of control. The other response is what I call active nihilism. I borrow these categories from Nietzsche fairly liberally. Active nihilism is the same picture that the world is a chaotic, meaningless place, but instead of withdrawing to an island and perfecting myself, I try and blow the world up in acts of spectacular violence. And uh, the book is, you know, looks at active nihilism in active nihilism as a way of talking about groups like uh, Al-Qaeda and related groups, and that was the, the context I was working with in the early 2000s. I think it still has a certain uh, power. So, the challenge that I try and face is the following. If we accept that there is a massive, disillusioned, motivational deficit in contemporary democracy, it's not a difficult thesis to argue, right? <laughs> Particularly after the gun vote yesterday. <clears throat> then how might this be addressed without sliding into passive or active nihilism? Without either, as it were, retreating to your, you know, retreat in Rhinebeck and doing things with crystals, or saying, "Fuck it, let's let's blow some shit up," you know, um, or let's watch enough video games to get the courage that we can finally blow some shit up. So, how does one avoid those two responses? And what I provide in the opening chapters of Infinitely Demanding is an account of ethics that would be motivating, practicable, and empowering hopefully, and ethics that can both face up to the wide-scale drift and slackening of the present, 
and become an element in an account of political praxis and resistance. And part of the problem with demotivation is a demotivation in relationship to what we think of as morality itself. And morality is either something we mouth without believing, or if we're uh, philosophy teachers, it's something we articulate in relationship to three exhaustive th theories. Virtue ethics, Aristotle, deontology, Kant, or forms of utilitarianism, Mill. And we then teach students to manipulate those three theories in relationship to cases like, you know, do you turn the life support machine on, do you turn it off, and so on and so forth. Should you have an abortion, should you not have an abortion? This is, in a sense, an evacuation in the name of morality of something like moral commitment and engagement. And what interests me much more, and this is, most of you don't know this, but the, this is the third in a series of events, which the first two have been uh, readings of Bad You, uh, Bad You's work. And what interests me about Bad You's work is his idea of ethics based on the formation of ethical subjectivity. That's what he's about. We need to get away from, as it were, forms of ethical abstraction and to think about what it means to become an ethical subject. For him, that turns on two concepts, the concept of the subject and the concept of the event. And the event is that in relationship to which the subject constitutes itself. And uh, that had a lot of influence on me when I was thinking about these things. Um, what interests me is the existential matrix of ethics, its visceral dimension, the experience of a subjective affirmation that binds us to a conception of the good and where subjectivity is shaped in relationship to that good. I don't want to rehearse arguments that, uh, that would take too long, but there's a distinction that philosophers make between uh, meta-ethics and normative ethics, very crudely. Meta-ethics is that area that we think of as a study of what makes ethics ethics, what by virtue of which ethics is ethics, nature of obligation, responsibility and so forth. Normative ethics is a certain picture of morality that one recommends. So in this book I propose a meta-ethics, or what we could call a grammar of moral insight. And it's based, it's very simple, it's based on two concepts, and those two concepts are approval and demand. So, the idea is, it's a very, what I like is the, the elegance is the simplicity of this, this theory, is that um, at the core of any conception of ethics is something doing the work of a demand, and that demand is something that a subject approves of. That demand could be the demand of the good uh, in Plato, the good beyond being, which is that to which the soul should orientate itself if you want to become a philosopher. Plato would say. That demand could be the demand that uh, Jesus Christ imposes upon you in the Sermon on the Mount when he says some pretty weird things. Right? And you then form yourself as a faithful subject to the demand that Jesus makes. Right? Be ye therefore perfect as unto him who made you. It's a really big demand. Or that demand could be the demand of the moral law. Kant's picture. The moral law, which is nothing imposed externally upon me, but which is the law that I give myself, which therefore corresponds to my autonomy, and so on and so forth. So this this very simple 
grammar of moral insight based on two concepts, approval and demand, I think explains a lot. So that's my meta-ethics. On the basis of that meta-ethics, I then uh, propose a certain normative picture. So for me, the key, the key concept in any ethics is uh, the formation of an ethical subject. And I recommend a particular view of the ethical subject, and it leads to the following postulate. Quote, an ethical subject is defined by commitment or fidelity to an unfulfillable demand, an infinite demand that is internalized subjectively and which divides subjectivity. The ethical subject is a individual, a split subject. So, and I organize this in relation to a number of thinkers, but that needn't really concern us. But the idea is that ethics is a relationship to a demand, but not a demand which I'm the equal of, an infinite demand, an infinite demand and an unfulfillable demand which splits me from myself, divides me against myself. Why use the word recommend a couple of times? It's, it's important. I do not think that moral argumentation is like arguments in logic or arguments in natural science. Right? Natural science, if we Natural science is things, propositions are true by virtue of their falsifiability or confirmability. Logical propositions are true by virtue of their form. Okay? Moral statements are something else. I think moral statements are only true insofar as they're accepted by the subject. Therefore, they have the status of recommendations. I don't think morality can be more than that. If it were more than that, it would actually contravene freedom. So. That's an important um, issue, and that would take us into the difference between uh, a moral command and a law. A moral command is a command, don't kill, but it's a command addressed to me in the second person, you shall not kill, and which I can approve of or disapprove of. So I have a certain picture of the moral subject, and I recommend it to you wholeheartedly. You may say, it's a load of rubbish. Right? I want to be a Kantian. That'd be fine. <coughs> At which point our conversation will be at an end. The question I then raise is, uh, this is where psychoanalysis comes into the picture in the book in a very powerful way uh, for, for me in terms of um, influences on me. It's in relationship to the notion of sublimation. Now, um, so having said that the core of Ethical subjectivity is a relationship to an infinite demand that divides me from myself. What prevents this from being a kind of uh, extraordinary masochism? Right? What prevents me from becoming aware? And you know, I, I think that we have to be masochists when it comes to the level of morality. It's a question of how much masochism. Right? But by masochism, I mean nothing particularly bad. But isn't this infinitely demanding an overwhelming masochism? And this is where I try and think about the question of sublimation. Uh, and sublimation for me, is the way Lacan formulates it, is the elevation of an object to the status of a thing. Or how can uh, the passion, as it were, that directs me towards an ethical demand be transformed or born in a certain way? 
And my argument is that and the way, say, Lacan thinks about sublimation is in relationship to tragedy. In particular, the tragedy of Antigone. Right? So for Lacan, the heroine of psychoanalysis is Antigone. Antigone is that being who does not give way on the desire that is in her. And the beauty, the splendor of Antigone as a being that we see on the stage allows us to sublimate right? our relationship to an ethical demand. I you know, nod uh, politely in the direction of Lacan and then propose a different theory of sublimation based on humour, because it's a lot funnier. And of course, and the thought here is Freudian rather than Lacanian. And um, this is, an, I discovered this, I discovered this, I read this rather, about 15 years ago. It made a big impression on me. It's not the book on Witz, which is, which I think is good, it's a great book, the book on, on jokes, and should be more closely read, but Freud didn't go back to the topic of, of uh, jokes very much. But in 1927, wrote an essay called Humor. Right? And um, the essay on humor begins with an empirical example, which some of you will have heard me talk about before. The empirical example is an example of a man that's condemned to be hanged. On the morning of his execution, he leaves the uh, cell, walks out to the courtyard, looks up at the sky and says, na die Woche fängt gut an. Well, the week, well, the week's beginning nicely. And Freud says, what's involved in this joke? Right? What's going on here? And his conclusion is the following. That what humor does, not vits and not jokes, which have, jokes have a relation to the unconscious, okay? That's, that's clear. If I say, you know, whatever, you know, Rousseau, whatever. I forget the examples And it, whereas humor has a relationship to the superego. Right? Humor has a relation to the superego, but the superego that's revealed in humor is not the punitive superego that we're used to in psychoanalysis, Freud says, but a more benign superego, what I think of as a more mature superego, what I call in a piece of extraordinarily eloquent neologism, <laughs> superego two. <laughs> so, superego one is bad superego, you're a worthless piece of shit, a sign of, you know, you don't deserve to breed, you fucking worm. <laughs> superego two is a superego where I look at myself from outside myself and I find myself ridiculous. Well, the week's beginning nicely. You know? And so, in that, and this allows me to... Um, uh, think about a phenomenon which is very important to me, which is the phenomenon of conscience. Uh, moral conscience is um, not just the lacerating, punitive conscience that I have to be free of, you know, my mother and my father in my head saying, don't do that, those things with your hands in bed, but conscience can be something different. Right? Um, and I think humour reveals Humor, I say, is the expression of my essential lack of self-coincidence, my eccentricity with respect to myself. So the, the philosophical kind of anthropology, which I, I, I argue for in, in the book, is that the human being is essentially an eccentric animal. Right? We, have, uh, we are the kind of beings who do not have a relationship to ourselves that is one of coincidence. 
it might be true of guinea pigs too, right? You can't ask them, I frequently do at home, but they can't, I don't understand what they're saying. Uh, maybe they have the same experience, but who knows? If a lion could talk, we would not understand it. Not that Wittgenstein spent much time talking to lions, exactly. But, but the point is that uh, eccentricity is the idea that I, it, it is a German phrase, and I'm, I'm borrowing here from the work of Helmut Plessner. Uh, the German phrase is, ich bin, aber ich habe mich nicht. Right? I am, but I do not have myself. So I am this thing, but I do not have myself. My, my self-relation is one where I do not coincide with myself. And humour is the, is that, humour is that, is the performance of that lack of self-coincidence. Which for me makes it an incredibly powerful form of sublimation. Right? And I go into different examples, uh, I could you know, tell some bad jokes, but I, I won't. What this brings us to is to, this is like the last chapter of the book, is to politics. As the formation of ethical, the formation of political subjectivity. This is outlined in a series of steps in a long final chapter, which begins with a reading of Marx. Um, now, the theory of ethical subjectivity that I describe is intended to support political remotivation and the experience of resistance. And to express this in a single proposition, um, let me say the following. Politics is praxis in a situation that can articulate and indeed create an interstitial distance from the state that allows for the emergence of new political subjectivities which exert a universal ethical claim. So politics is situational praxis that uh, can, in certain fortuitous circumstances, create a distance from the state that allows for the emergence of a new form of subjectivity. A new subjectivity that organizes itself around a general claim. And I'll give some examples of this as we, as we move through the argument. I see this proposition as consistent with the affirmation of anarchism. And I think, or I'd like to think, uh, that the horizontalist, anti-authoritarian logic of uh, Unberhagen is anarchist in the best sense. The problem with anarchism is we don't really ever understand what it means. Anarchism is not disorder, it's another thinking of order, and anarchism is a thinking of order in relationship to an idea of direct democracy. So the idea is whether there can be forms of, in relationship to Das Unbehagen, is whether there can be forms of organisation which do not necessarily form do not necessarily become authoritarian. It seems to me that psychoanalytic institutes have the peculiar characteristic of authoritarianism in relationship usually to a dead master. Obviously, Freud, you go to the New York psychoanalytic up there at 82nd, and whatever it is, and you know, the, you, the downstairs room is full of little busts of Freud. Right? He is the god, the master, the ghost, whose words was the institution embodies that authority. If you want to be one of us, you have to submit to that authority. And I think, and it's oddly the case with I think most psychoanalytic institutes that I'm aware of, that they replicate that structure, even in their opposition to Freud. Right? So, why see, or I, as an outsider, you know, from my 
bedroom, as it were, looking at um, Das Umberhag, and it seems to me that there's a kind of horizontalism here, which is, I think, closer to anarchism, in the sense of an anti-authoritarian way, form of organisation. Um, and I talk about anarchism and Marxism, but I don't think we necessarily need to go into that. But, um, you know, I make a contrast between Marxism as a theoretical discourse about revolutionary strategy, which is based more or less on an eschatological theory of history based on the premise of a simplification of class positions, right? ultimately the opposition of bourgeoisie and proletariat. Uh, anarchism is not that. Anarchism never really gets a theory. Um, it's made first theorist Bakunin um, manages a series of letters and denunciations, but there's no, as it were, and there's a kind of suspicion of theory within anarchism. Anarchism can be understood as an ethical discourse about transformational practice. It's not a revolutionary strategy based upon uh, a philosophy of history. And that's an important distinction, I think. Which is also why uh, Marxism does so much better business in academia than anarchism. Because you can, you can package it, you can sell it, you've got theory, you've got an overarching systematic explanation, you can, you know, lay it out. Anarchism is kind of crap in relationship to that. And that's for me is its strength. It begins, anarchism really begins with the planting of vegetables. I'd like to say more about that. It's not about, you know, black balaclavas and throwing things at the police. It's about the, the diggers and the early years of the English Revolution, you know, reclaiming land. It's much more, in a sense, uh, low scale and not so dramatic. Um, since the book appeared in 2007, much in the world appears to have changed. Um, some people, often journalists I speak to, usually well-intentioned, have seen this book as prophetic of the complex sequence of events that began to unravel with the widespread and bloodily suppressed protest against the fraudulent elections in Iran in 2009, through to what is all too complacently referred to as the Arab Spring, which began with Mohammed Bouazizi's act of bodily resistance in Tunisia in December 2010, self-immolation, sacrifice, and on to the series of events that we can summarize with the word Occupy that kicked off in New York on September the 17th, 2011. So I've been asked this question in interviews and things. It's kind of, isn't this, doesn't this, does this anticipate these things? I remember a Dutch friend of mine who had always been highly skeptical of my views emailing me late at night at the height of the process in Tahrir Square in February 2011 and saying, you were right, what we're seeing is political resistance as the creation of distance within the state against the state. It's what you call true democracy. And I was a little perplexed by that. So um, let me try and clarify some things. At the end of Infinitely Demanding, <clears throat> I, I, there's this passage which actually kicks off from uh, a passage from Gramsci that... Uh, this is, a, this is a really beautiful quotation. Uh, Gramsci says, The decisive element in every situation is the permanently organized and long-prepared force which can be put into the field when it's judged the situation is favorable. And it can be favorable only insofar as such a force exists 
and is full of fighting spirit. Therefore, the essential task is that of systematically and patiently ensuring that this force is formed, developed, and rendered ever more homogeneous, compact, and self-aware. That's Gramsci's idea of what it means to form a political subject. And the, 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 the genius of Gramsci is that and Gramsci um, is in, instructive for, for someone like me because, um, you know, Gramsci, you know, according to the conventional or the, the orthodoxy of the second international Marxism, um, when, uh, when capitalism finally collapsed, uh, the working class would rise, rise up and there would be a, a communist revolution. Whereas what happened in the First World War is that members of the working class slaughtered each other in the name of imperial regimes. Right? How, therefore, do we explain that historical configuration and what are the consequences of that? And then Gramsci is also writing in the moment of the rise of the fascists in, in Italy. And uh, how does that work with the logic of history exactly? So what Gramsci then turns to is, a, is an idea uh, which I think is a, an interesting idea for the unbehagen people, which is the idea of what he calls hegemony. And hegemony is not domination. Right? Hegemony is the formation of a political subject out of a set of um, disparate interests. It's the cultivation of what we can call a habitus, out of a situation where there is not a simplification of class struggle, but actually there's a, a pluralization of actors. So we have to make something more compact, <coughs> homogenous and self-aware, out of a disparate set of interests. And that means that politics for Gramsci, and this is vital, takes place on the terrain of civil society, its political struggle at the level of civil society, and it takes place at the level of common sense, what Gramsci calls common sense. It's about the cultivation of forms of commonality, new forms of commonality. I'll say more about that as we go on. Which means that politics is not, as it were, the quasi-automatic um, uh, operation of the economy, as it were, whose contradictions of forces and relations of productions will produce the collapse of the world banking system and the rise of the proletariat to power. That's not going to happen. That didn't happen. Uh, politics has to be the cultivation of forms of commonality on the terrain of civil society, which means that politics is ideological struggle. Ideology is not secondary to, it's not the superstructure of some base, which is the economy. Ideology is the terrain of identification, of human life, and of human struggle. And it's on that level that we have to act politically. And that's why the theory of ideology is so important for the kind of uh, uh, people that influence me a lot, like Ernesto Leclerc. Uh, who's a great political thinker. And it also means that... About, um, so, I, I've got a problem with prefaces, you know, because you end up sounding like a wanker. 
And uh, I'll skip that bit because that sounds a bit... It's, it's the bit that's on the poster, which sounds very grand, but I won't read it. I feel nauseated looking at it. So <laughs> skip over that. It's also probably a bad you has had, because it, what's... Me and Jameson make a habit of reading the prefaces to Bad You's books, and we'll say, This is another bestseller I wrote! He's a bestseller! And he was translated to 62 languages! It's extraordinarily influential! And, you know, in a page and a half. So how not to lapse into that kind of uh, stupidity is something I'm going to try and avoid. So, um, the argument of infinitely demanding uh, was not some you know, anticipation of things that happened, but exactly the opposite. It began to take shape in response to the political radicalization that burst into media prominence. Of course, it went back much further than that, with the famous battle in Seattle um, against the meeting of the WTO in late November 1999, which spawned the so-called anti-globalization movement and the anti-war movement. What suddenly seems to be available in 1999-2000, and which had in truth gestated for a long time in a series of interconnected movements such as the Zapatistas, what suddenly seemed to be available was a new language of civil disobedience. A new language of civil disobedience. Indeed, an intensely comical language of civil disobedience. The new forms of resistance that emerged there were funny, you know, rebel clown army or billionaires against Bush or whatever it was. He was anarchist in his tactics and aspirations and conducted a willfully imaginative and successful non-violent warfare against the state apparatus. Whatever might be true about the political argument of the book, Infinitely Demanding, is based on an, an almost ethnographic attention to what was going on within these movements and talking to people connected with them. I'd like to say I was an activist myself, but I'm kind of a crap activist. I don't get out as much as I should. What remains compelling about the analyses of infinitely demanding was learned from others and paying close attention to what was happening in various struggles. So what I did in, in for a number of years was just to talk to people, read people, and just to get a sense of what was going on here, because suddenly there seemed to be a, a shift in the political landscape. This is also the moment when, theoretically, everyone was reading uh, Hart and Negri's Empire. And here seemed to be like a, an ontology that explained the anti-globalization movement. And I was like suspicious of that ontology, um, but one had to accept uh, its power. So, Let me say something else. <clears throat> um, I don't believe in political philosophy. Um, in the sense in which sometimes the, the, the phrase political philosophy seems like a contradiction in terms. Particularly when we think of the tradition that extends from Plato to John Rawls. The lofty philosopher surveys the landscape of political regimes from his armchair and offers both a critique of those regimes and the picture of another political regime based on a set of abstract metaphysical principles, such as the philosophical procedure with regard to politics. We look at the different regimes, democracy, oligarchy, tyranny, we criticise them and we come up with another picture of society based on a series of 
uh, metaphysical principles or a theory of justice. I don't think philosophy should be doing that. So what do I think philosophy should be doing? Or what I'm doing, what we, what we call that? In my view, in order to think through the situation in which we find ourselves, we do not need political philosophy as much as a combination of four factors. Four factors. And those four factors are genealogy, formalism, ethnography, and persuasion. Those are the four concepts I'm going to present. Let me try to explain what I mean by that. So we don't mean, we don't mean as it were, uh, philosophical ruminations on the, the state of the world, you know, the, the, the wasteland grows or whatever. We need something else. The first concept is uh, genealogy. We begin, I think, with a scrupulous historical investigation into the genealogy of political form. I think, I think each of these concepts also applies to psychoanalysis. That's why I'm emphasizing it. We need a, a scrupulous historical investigation into the genealogy of political forms and the analysis of the, their mechanisms of legitimation, governance, and oppression, and how those mechanisms have generated inequality. I see historical analysis as the exposure of the contingent articulation of political forms. So the purpose of history, genealogical history, is the exposure of the contingent nature of the political forms that surround us. So resistance has to begin with a history lesson, it seems to me. And this approach is, uh, I, I talk about it in Inflicted Demanding, but I take it much further in a more recent book, The Faith of the Faithless. And this is an idea that I borrow from one of my heroes, Rousseau. And Rousseau, in the second discourse, gives us a genealogy of politics. A genealogy of politics from uh, the moment we first had eye contact one with another at the pond where we, the narcissism kicks in to the inequality of the state of war with which the um, the, the, which rages in the world. The second concept is formalism. We need a strong formal analysis of the conditions under which an oppositional egalitarian politics might be constructed. This would include the sketching of an alternative set of political practices and institutions with concepts, say, like association, general assembly, affinity groups, and spokes councils. We begin with a history lesson, and then the second thing would be uh, a formalistic understanding of what concepts would be required for uh, a legitimate political organisation. The third concept, which in many ways is the most important, is ethnography. <coughs> we need a detailed local ethnography of social life that would try and identify how any such formal model might become operationalised in a specific context. For that we need an account of habits, morals, what the 18th century French authors like Rousseau used to call les mœurs, right? mores, local traditions and local, uh, local conditions and traditions. So any radical egalitarian politics must not be imposed from above but must be generated from below, from the molecular infrastructure of social life. Right? So any conception of politics has to begin with genealogy, have a, a, a formal vision of what, let's say, a, a legitimate society might look like, but then have an incredibly detailed uh, 
anthropology or ethnography of the habits, customs, and traditions of a particular place, and what it would take for such a formal picture of justice to be uh, applicable or utilizable in a specific context. Right? Without that, uh, this is why you know I'm not a revolutionary. Right? I don't believe in I think the concept of revolution is a, a largely sort of empty concept. I mean, both astronomically, which is its origin, and uh, politically. And to that extent, you know, um, this is where I'm a conservative in, in, a, in a very important way. That if we uh, if we engage in revolutionary activity in the kind of year zero version, then we eliminate the very resources, the moral uh, resources that uh, have to be the as it were seed out of which a different picture of society might be organised. Right? This is. Burke's critique of the French Revolution. You eradicate the existing social order, you, you create a power vacuum into which the tyrant or dictator steps. Right? So how do we, how do we, and for that to be avoided, there have to be moral resources, habits have to be uh, developed. The fourth uh, concept is the concept of persuasion. So finally, when we're done with genealogical, formal, and ethnographic research, then it becomes a question of argumentation and persuasion of the most lucid kind. What the Greeks called pitho, right? which was a goddess for the Greeks, pitho, persuasion. If you read the Greek tragedies, which I love to read, uh, people would unleash persuasion, right? and their words would bring someone around. Right? So, we have to unleash persuasion. Persuasive political argumentation is parasitic upon the other three elements. There is no philosophical ground to politics, nor should there be. There are no guarantees. This doesn't mean we have empty hands on the contrary. A truly democratic politics requires the simultaneous articulation of at least two elements. Let's just form a picture. I'm coming to the end now. A a democratic politics requires the articulation, simultaneous articulation of at least two elements. First, there is a demand, an infinite demand in my case, but let's say a demand, that flows from the felt perception of a wrong or an injustice. Right? So the first element, I think, in any democratic policy is a demand. That is a demand that is felt in relationship to a disappointment in the state of affairs that one sees. The second element is location, a terrain where that demand can be articulated. And there's no politics without location. Think about this in relationship to an event like Occupy Wall Street. First, there was a visceral sense of a moral wrong, namely that corporate financial capitalism, particularly the banking system, had used federal government money in order to save itself at the expense of ordinary citizens. One of the key slogans of autumn 2011 was banks got bailed out, bailed out, we got sold out. The people were simply ripped off. So the first perception was a perception of a wrong. Here is a, a wrong, a moral outrage. In relation to this wrong, this injustice, the OWS movement took shape not in relationship to the pragmatic demands of normal politics, but in relation to infinite demands. 
That's the strategy, not to play the pragmatic game of these are our, these are our demands, this is what we want, but infinite demands, demands that call into question the entire existence of normal governmental political system and the capitalism that it fostered and served. OWS was persistently criticised by those in power, particularly in the broadcast media, in the form of the following question. Who are your leaders and what do you want? Right? Who are your leaders and what do you want? And this is a wonderful moment when there was the, after OWS was dismantled, whatever verb we used by the police, uh, when the Macy's sale started in, um, whatever that is, the day after Christmas, right? And there was this, you know, there were thousands of people flooding into Macy's and there were sort of scuffles and kerfuffles and whatever. And there was a headline somewhere which is what, you know, who are your leaders and what do you want? <laughs> so there was that sense of uh, dissolution. If you're acting politically, you have to make pragmatic demands, which we can understand. Um, the strength and the horizontalist discipline of the Occupy movement consisted in the refusal to congeal around a leader in the manner of conventional politics or indeed Leninist vanguardism. So the conventional story which you'll find in Zizek and, uh, and, and Badiou, right, is that you know, politics has to form around the master. Right? There has to be. Someone has to occupy the position of the master. Uh, and that's why you know, people on the left used to get so you know, hot for Chavez. Right? Because he was a master. You finally believe in him. I think that's always wrong. And this is where, you know, Lacan is, um, when Lacan has that uh, back and forth with uh, students at the end of seminar, 18, 17, the other side, L'Envers de la Sicanese, where he says, you know, and the Mar Leninist, Marxist Leninist students are saying, you know, you know, fuck you coming here, you know, you're, you know, you're bourgeois like Manassas and whatever, and we want revolution right now. And Lacan says, you know, Go back to study, study, you know, <laughs> you know, be a student or whatever. And, and then he says finally, you know, um, uh, what you want is a master, right? and you will have one. Right? So I think that's a lesson. So to refuse leadership in that way, and also to um, refuse the request for pragmatic, finite demands and to refuse that request with infinite demands, namely, occupy everything, end income inequality, this is what democracy looks like. So as it were, strategically, in terms of the <coughs> language of the struggle, it became a language of uh, infinite demands. I think that's very interesting, as a way of uh, not conceding to the normal political game. There's a lot more we can say about that, but let's just leave it, about occupying it, let's leave it there. OWS formed a new political subjectivity around the slogan, we are the 99%. In relation to the massive disappointment that grew through the first years of the Obama administration, the Occupy movement created a political space where none previously existed, an interstice created through infinite demand. So, in terms of my theory, Right? Politics is the creation of interstitial distance. This seems to, you know, you know yeah. 
that in order for movements like Occupy to become effective, a location was required. What took physical shape in Zuccotti Park from September 2011 onwards was a location where radical demands were linked together with the occupation and redefinition of space. A small inconsequential privately owned Lower Manhattan uh, park in Lower Manhattan became the material evidence for another form of life, one based not on privatised acquisitiveness but on mutual aid. So I think the lesson, if there is a lesson for Umbehagen from that example is what is your demand and where is your location? <laughs> what is your demand and where is your location? And there has to be a location. I suppose um, to that extent I still think that politics or organisation is something which requires bodies in space at some level. And I think you know, not just that, but it does need that. I think I, I think I, in that embarrassing quotation that's on the poster, um, I try and emphasise that um, resistance can be intimate and can begin in small groups, in small affinity groups. So we have a, we're, we're, you know, we're addicted to scale and to size, whereas in many ways uh, thinking politically in relationship to small scale is, I think, very interesting and very compelling. So we shouldn't be addicted to the idea of the, the huge, the vast. So demonstration and protest are essential but transient phenomena, often doomed to abstraction. In order to avoid that fate, the slogans of protest need to be harnessed to the occupation of space and the formation of alternative locations for politics. The lesson of Zuccotti Park was both that of the necessity of location and its unpredictable character. Nobody expected what happened with Occupy Wall Street to happen there where it did, and the Occupy movement to happen in the way it did and where it did. So, if the classical nation-state, this is my last bit, if the classical nation-state, or indeed the supranational sphere like the EU, is no longer a political terrain because sovereignty has been outsourced from people to banks credit rating agencies and shadowy investors, then the, the political task is the creation of such a terrain at a distance from the state, to show that another form of life is not just possible, but can become actual. What erupted so gloriously in autumn 2011 under the name Occupy and precursor movements like Los Indignados was only the beginning. The genie of popular protest cannot be put back into the bottle. It's not the business of philosophers to engage in prophecy, but I think you know, uh, a, lot more is, a lot more is coming. But the, the sort of background diagnosis here, and again this is more in a, I guess in, in, a, in a European context than an American context, that's analogous, is that there is um, an absolutely palpable uh, crisis of sovereignty um, in the, the space of the European Union. Um, the, uh, the, uh, the myth so the legitimating myth of uh, Western liberal democracy was that political parties represented social groups, actual social groups, and when the political parties were elected, they would have sovereignty to make law such as that law would reflect the will of the people that elected them. Right? And therefore, power and politics would be unified. Right? 
that was the that was the truth. Uh, that has radically fallen apart. Power and politics have become completely separate. Politics does not have power. Politics serves power, and power has been outsourced to agencies that are not politically or democratically accountable. Right? The troika that governs, say, the business of the various European nation states. So, what do you do? You know, if you think of situations like in, uh, in Greece, we were there a few weeks ago, or elsewhere, there's, and this is where you know, we need to have people like, people like Rousseau, I think, are so important, is that that crisis of sovereignty and, and the, the sense of powerlessness that people have throws people back onto forms of identification which are atavistic and completely out, out of date. And this leads to the rise of the, of the populist right, the nationalist right. So, if we take a, a context like the Netherlands, which I know a little bit about, um, I mean, what does it mean to be Dutch? Well, we don't know, right? But uh, in, the, in the face of these immigrants that are taking over our country and uh, making us feel anxious, we want to reclaim a sense of Dutchness and be truly Dutch. And those people must integrate into a fantasy of Dutchness that we've just created. Right? And similar arguments can be made in the French context with the rise of the Front National and elsewhere. The most extreme example being, being um, Golden Dawn in, in, um, in, in Greece. But the point is that, you, is that because there is a, a lack of any any means for the construction of political identity uh, on the terrain of the state, people fall back into these atavistic ideas of nationhood. And that's also, so where's the hope? I mean, the hope um, would be that uh, the political movements that emerged over the last years at a distance from the state could become the basis for a new organisation of political space that could, in my wildest imaginings, correspond to some kind of federalist vision of politics that would be outside of the nation-state. And, um, and then, you know, this is... Then the question, not the meta-question, I've, I've given us a look at it, up the analysis of, of Occupy. Um, did Occupy do that? Um, well, I think the answer is no. Um, and then why not? And what would it have taken to do that? I think at that point, this is where we need I think, to go back to someone like Gramsci. <clears throat> it's a question of, 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 of having a, a set of political tools you know, uh, in one's hands to think about uh, the nature of uh, something that happens like the Occupy with its infinite demands and its location and then think about what it would take to it, what it would take in order for something like that to become the basis of a genuine collective movement. Right? And of course that would mean uh, uh, a relationship to um, organised labour, unions, different groups, church groups, all the rest. That would be the Gramscian task. How do we construct a new kind of ideological terrain? And then the question that, 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 that one raises and you know, I don't know where I stand on this, particularly in the um, 
American context is the relationship between such a movement and the existing political system based on an idea of representation. Now, Mr. Badiou, who you were looking at uh, in, in your reading group uh, recently, is very clear for him as a, as a Rousseauist, which he, which he is much more than a Marxist, uh, as, a, as a good Rousseauist, uh, Badiou does not believe in voting. Representation is not the mechanism of politics. Therefore, don't vote. That's one way of thinking through uh, the consequence of groups like Occupy. Right? Direct democracy all the way down. I'm not so sure about that. Uh, I've got hesitations about that. So um, it would then become a question of what forms of negotiation and formation of a political group might be possible all the way to um, forms of representation of normal politics. And that's a question which is uh, um, a difficult one. And uh, that's about it. <laughs>
psychoanalysts who would never make such coping with problems are extreme of the present the time which and the prognosis for positive mind itching to do something to help folks out of his technique daughters and his heavy heart to see you come here with sweat i didn't know if you as become we work within the physical so glad and you magical but to carpet. tell you the truth, entwined, I don't buy it. I'm so happy to see them together, dancing around. One David, his Think left my hand closed. What life has already done, and to those you continue present and future commute. within its invisible presence and future continue within its invisible walls. Condensing wonder around David. Think my friend left hand clue what life has already done to those. But to tell you the truth on a magic carpet and someone wants happy I'm so happy to see them together. I didn't know if you'd be as we work within the physical and magical dying reading became and his heavy body into cold tense sweat. Stockholm.